0: You're listening to Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. We are looking into Indiana's power grid. How it works, how it's outdated and renewable alternatives the state could explore to transition into more sustainable forms of energy.
1: From outdated equipment, an energy storage problem, and the impacts of climate change, Indiana's power grid faces a crisis. WFHB and Limestone Post interviewed experts, advocates, and government officials on how the Indiana power grid works and how the state will grapple with an ongoing energy transition. In today's edition of Deep Dive, we will explore the basics of the power grid, renewable alternatives, and what the future holds for Indiana's energy grid.
0: Dr. Robert Weisbach is the chair of the Department of Engineering Technology at IUPUI. His areas of expertise include renewable energy and energy storage. Dr. Weisbach elaborated on how Indiana's power grid works.
2: So the power grid typically works by having energy sources, which could be created through either from nuclear fission or through natural gas-fired plants or coal-fired plants or maybe renewable sources generate the electricity, the voltage that's generated, um, which is kind of a pressure that pushes the electricity through the lines, is typically made a lot higher by use of transformers. And that higher voltage allows it to be transmitted long distances with fewer losses. Because engineers are always dealing with efficiency, we want to maintain high efficiency uh, in whatever we do. And then those high voltages, when you get towards loads uh, like cities or towns, um, those voltages are then reduced in a certain number of steps uh, for distribution to eventually to homes and businesses.
0: Peter Schubert, a professor of electrical and computer engineering at Indiana University, said the physical components of the power grid are becoming antiquated.
3: So the grid is considered to be the most complex machine ever created by mankind. Many of the physical assets are old because uh, the development of the grid started in the started to develop hard in the 50s. And then by the 70s was mostly built out. So some of these legacy systems have been around for 30 or 40 years and may be approaching their the end of their expected lifetime. So uh, with normal wear and tear, those things have to be replaced. That's relatively easy to predict. But there's two other factors that are really becoming important more recently. One is that people want smarter grids. As more consumers or businesses are generating their own electric power with, like, on-site solar, when they sell back into the grid, this provides another point that needs to be balanced and considered in the grid balancing. So that makes things more complex. So we may need smarter grids that have more sophisticated controls and sensors. And those things, of course, cost money and take manpower and, it, and, and you have to go and do that. You have the engineers to design it, implement it, make sure that it works, test it, manage things in the case of, of blackouts and stuff. So that's a smart grid. There's a lot of money coming from the federal government to make that happen. Because a lot of the existing grid infrastructure is old, they are, there are points of electronic vulnerability that could be exploited by bad actors. Um, and that's, that's the cyber part of it. The physical part of it is that, as we saw last summer, where some Yahoos or uh, extremist groups would shoot rifles into substations and the transformers there, that kind of destruction of those transformers, because they you, you don't buy them every year, you buy them every you know half a century, if enough of those things get disrupted, there's no inventory. And it could take not hours or days to restore power, but it could take months or or years in some cases if there's a substantial coordinated attack on our electric grid. So all those argue for a smarter grid and a more distributed or decentralized um, grid architecture.
0: Schubert outlined that Indiana has an energy storage problem. In order to transition to renewable energy sources, He said the state would need to invest in large-scale energy storage.
3: One big need is energy storage. Um, As I mentioned earlier, this balancing act between generation and consumption is moment by moment. And as time goes on, that will become more complicated. One thing that makes it less complicated and more resilient, more reliable, which reliability is really important for Indiana because we're a very manufacturing heavy state and uh, when you've got a factory if you lose power you could lose product so a really important factor in making the grid more resilient more reliable would be large-scale energy storage so uh, when people think of energy storage the first thing you think of is a battery batteries are on a per unit of energy they're fantastically expensive they're convenient they're easy to install those are Big pluses, but they're super expensive. Still, we've got um, MISO and other um, ISOs across the country installing large amounts of lithium-ion batteries on the grid um, to provide storage in case of blackouts, to take care of the non-dispatchability of wind and solar, and it also provide other grid services like, uh, you know, regulating the, the fine controls of this of this balancing act. So energy storage is a really big need, and we also need it to be much less expensive. Kerwin
1: Olson is the executive director for the Citizens Action Coalition, or the CAC, an environmental advocacy organization. The CAC advocates for more equitable energy policy, utility reform, and pollution prevention. Olson agreed that aspects of the state's power grid are out of fashion, relying on fossil fuels and a, quote, Old business model, end quote. He said Indiana should invest into renewable energy, wind, solar, and green carbon, all the while maintaining reliability.
4: Indiana's system is effectively designed based on the old Thomas Edison Pearl Street Station model, if you will, of 100 plus years ago of having a central baseload power plant that delivers electricity across many, many miles. Uh, to the end user, so we would consider our system to be uh, outdated in the context of it serving the old business model of baseload power. What we need is to build and design and upgrade our grid to serve uh, what the grid of the future is, and that is microgrids, small distributed energy resources like solar panels on roofs, uh, et cetera, um, that are that's at the distribution level. Closer to the end user, that's where uh, the electricity markets and technologies are moving. We're moving away from the idea of large baseload central power plants to a much smaller distributed network, if you will, that's that's uh, that's full of uh, energy efficiency conservation um, and, uh, and demand uh, distributed energy resources, again, like solar panels, like wind turbines, storage and batteries, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's not to say that we don't need both. CAC believes we, we strongly need to have a grid that serves the energy of the future, if you will, but we also um, need to ensure that we have the necessary transmission infrastructure in place to ensure reliability and also ensure that, most notably, large industrial users of energy who consume massive, massive quantities of electricity and have access uh, to renewable energy on the grid. Most notably, a lot of that low powered and cheap uh, wind coming out of Minnesota. Uh, the Dakota's, the Nebraska, Iowa, that right now can't make it to Indiana because we don't have the necessary transmission infrastructure in place. So we should absolutely be investing at both levels with respect to transmission. That investment should be designed uh, to increase penetration of renewable resources from a regional perspective. And then from the distribution level, we should be having a grid that serves customers' needs with electricity flow in both directions, serving customers to uh, that generate their own energy. Uh, To increase uh, reliability, efficiency, and uh, resiliency of the grid.
1: Olson elaborated on renewable energy as an alternative to the fossil fuel reliance currently embedded into the power grid system. He highlighted the benefit of wind and solar energy, but also the prospects of renewable hydrogen.
4: Well, I think, you know, all signs are pointing right now to wind and solar and storage being the off the shelf technologies available today that CAC is most interested in, but we're also having a very very robust conversation nationally and internationally as well about hydrogen and the role that hydrogen may or may not play uh, in the you know energy grid of the future if you will and CAC is interested and supportive of the idea of green hydrogen that is hydrogen made from renewable energy but we're not interested uh, in brown or gray or other colors of hydrogen where that hydrogen is is coming from either, uh, you know, fossil fuels or nuclear power. That would be dirty hydrogen, if you will. So, uh, at the moment, you know, what 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 is what is available off the shelf is, you know, solar, wind, uh, efficiency and and storage, and what we're looking towards uh, in the future. Certainly, green hydrogen and the role that that may or may not play as far as decarbonization and electrification go. DAC anyway has very very little interest. Uh, in the continuation of uh, thermal electricity, whether that electricity comes from fossil fuels uh, or uranium with the case of nuclear reactors. Those are all expensive, dirty, dangerous, and environmentally destructive ways in which to generate electricity, and so we, we prefer truly renewable and sustainable options, starting with conservation and efficiency first, and then solar and wind second.
1: Hydrogen storage is one potential solution that Peter Schubert sees as a viable option in the long-term future. At IU, he's researching hydrogen storage using porous silicone, which he says would be cheaper than lithium-ion batteries.
3: Hydrogen is super popular in the EU. Uh, hydrogen is super popular in Japan. Hydrogen is super popular in the Middle East. In the United States, people like, ho-hum, oh, we love batteries. But hydrogen has the potential to be significantly less expensive than than using batteries, um, and it pairs hydrogen storage with a fuel cell. So it's a little more complicated, and it's not as efficient, but again, it can be much cheaper than lithium-ion batteries. So at the Luger Center, we're working on two aspects of this. One is the production of green hydrogen from biomass, like crop wastes, that are abundant in Indiana we can make very cheap hydrogen. And the second part is that we can store that using porous silicon, that's S-I-C-I-L-O-N. There's no E at the end, that's a different product. Silicon is the same thing that solar panels are made from. So with porous silicon, we can make low cost hydrogen storage that can scale up to be useful on the utility grid. So this is still a couple of years away, but this is a pathway by which with psham and with hydrogen storage in porous silicon we can make um, new low-cost methods of energy storage to make the grid more resilient more reliable and allow a greater penetration of wind and solar for our sources of electricity
0: you're listening to deep dive wfhb and limestone post investigate over the next few weeks we are looking into indiana's power grid deep dive airs each wednesday at 5 p.m on the wfhb local news
1: According to the US Energy Information Administration, Indiana is the eighth largest producer of coal overall. As of last year, Indiana had 34 coal-fueled power plants, the highest number in the United States. Olson said Indiana devotes less than 10% of its energy usage into renewable energy sources. He noted that the state is starting to phase out coal. However, the challenge is how to replace it.
4: Well, if you look at the grid collectively at the moment, uh, Indiana is, you know, primarily served by fossil fuels, whether that's coal or whether that's gas. You know, we're 10 to 12 percent served by the nuclear power plant in Michigan, owned by Indiana Michigan Power. And we're about 10 percent renewables when you combine uh, wind, solar and and hydro and storage. So we're still less than 10 percent renewables and still you know, 90 percent reliant on traditional Uh, forms, forms of energy. That said, um, you know, if you look at the plans of the Indiana utilities, we will effectively have four of our five large Indiana utilities be coal-free by 2028, uh, with Duke Energy claiming they'll be coal-free by the mid-2030s. So we are seeing a rapid, rapid uh, retirement of all the coal-fired power plants uh, in Indiana. Uh, But the question is, what are we going to replace them with? And that's that's where the challenge is because utilities are currently planning to replace them. Other than NipSCO, NipSCO is going almost exclusively um, renewable. But utilities are replacing those coal plants with a mixture of wind, solar, and uh, you know fossil gas plants. And what we'd like to see is you know a commitment to, at the moment anyway, um, you know the addition of substantial amounts of of wind and solar. uh, And we do not want to see uh, the construction of, of, of new gas plants in Indiana as, uh, that will do little to solve the, uh, you know, existential crisis that is climate change. We need to be moving away from fossil fuels in their entirety. So on the good side, we're shutting down coal plants and we'll have very, very little coal in Indiana in the coming years. On the flip side of that is what are we going to replace it with? And it's, it's certainly CAC's hope and we certainly will be advocating, uh, for replacing those coal plants with the 100% renewable energy.
0: Olson discussed how climate change and extreme weather impact the state's power grid. He called for a more resilient grid as climate change begins to disrupt the energy system.
4: I mean, not only are we seeing severe weather patterns that is causing significant damage uh, either to the grid or the pipeline system or the power plants. So we need to invest in a grid that is far more reliable and far more resilient to these interruptions caused by climate change, these severe uh, severe weather events, but we've also seen severe weather events impact, you know, the supplies of fossil fuels, coal and gas, freezing pipelines, freezing power plants and things. So what we've seen is is climate change is, is a significant disruptive force that, that is requiring, you know, significant investments and upgrades to our generation resources uh, and our grid. And, and these disruptions also cost people time, uh, cost people money, and disrupt their way of life and, and is a real Concerned with respect to health and safety, and uh, and uh, even can cost lives uh, in certain events when when homes and, and businesses uh, lose access to energy. So climate change is here; it's real. It's disrupting our energy supply today. It's disrupting prices today. And what we need to do is that should absolutely be a top consideration um, whenever uh, the Indiana State uh, you know State General Assembly or the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission uh, is making decisions about spending tons of Uh, public money on investments in our electric system, let's ensure that those investments uh, are sound investments with respect to creating a more resilient grid uh, that can respond uh, to climate change.
0: Professor Weisbach talked about the future of the energy grid and how he would like to see a transition take place. He said it takes innovation, legislation, and technology to make any shifts in energy infrastructure.
2: To make changes to to the energy grid requires both legislation, it requires innovation and technology, and it, and you have to be able to be able to change people's attitudes about energy so that they understand you know the importance of making transitions. And so I think that you know that is a slow process, typically. To change people's attitudes and to, to enact legislation that's going to work with the technology that's available to be able to affect changes in in the profile of our of our power grid. It's a very difficult but necessary process that that we have to go through. I think that process is going to is going to be dictated potentially by you know external events. So if all of a sudden you know the Earth were to heat up more than we expected, for example, and it starts impacting crops, then people might be more inclined to make changes that they might not have made before. So a lot is going to depend on just um, events that occur, you know, over time, and how those events are impacting, you know, our day-to-day lives. And if there's a significant enough impact on our day-to-day lives, people will be more inclined to want to make changes assuming that the technology is there to, to accomplish that.
0: Tune in next week to hear more about Indiana's power grid, how it works, how it's outdated, and renewable alternatives the state could explore to transition into more sustainable forms of energy. For WFHB, I'm Cade Young. And I'm Benedict Jones.